This is Asia Insight. Asia Policy in a Pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., I'm Dan Um. Asia Insight is a new podcast series from NBR in which we interview top Asia experts to discuss a range of key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region, with a focus on how these issues affect U.S. policy and businesses. We start with a discussion of China's Belt and Road Initiative, described by today's guest as Xi's organizing foreign policy concept. That guest is Nadej Roland, Senior Fellow for Political and Security Affairs at NBR. You can find her at her Twitter handle, at Roland Nadej. She graduated with a Master's of Science in Chinese Language and Contemporary Chinese Studies at the National Institute of Oriental Languages and Civilizations and from the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. For 20 years, she served at the French Ministry of Defense, both as an analyst and then a senior advisor on Asian and Chinese strategic issues, and was a research analyst for the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. She is the author of China's Eurasian Century, Political and Strategic Implications of the Belt and Road Initiative. Her book, published by NBR in 2017 and the first of its kind, analyzes official statements and analysis from within China to construct an overarching context of the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. She argues that contrary to some popular conceptions, BRI is not merely an infrastructure plan across Asia, but rather is President Xi's strategy for China to realize its vision of becoming the preponderant power in Asia. In this discussion, Nadej will walk us through the significance of BRI, what it means for the region, and how U.S. officials and businesses should respond to Xi Jinping's major foreign policy initiative. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Nadej. So, Nadej, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So, I think it's fair to say that you've deepened the understanding of China's Belt and Road Initiative and injected it into the mainstream policy discussions in a way that certainly no one from the West has done, and certainly not in D.C. You don't have to say that I'm saying that, right? And so, uh, I, it was striking in your book, uh, you mentioned this. You said, in 2014, Chinese scholars published 492 articles on Belt and Road-related topics. One year later, the number had jumped to more than 8,400 articles. Western analysts were slower to take notice of this initiative. So tell me, how did it get started? How did you pick up the scent where others hadn't yet tapped into? Uh, Well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. I really appreciate that. Uh, It's totally not deserved. (laughs) Uh, Second, how I... Uh, thought about it. Well, you know, I I spend my days basically reading stuff about what China is doing in the foreign policy area. And Belt and Road was just starting to emerge as something that was getting repeated in the foreign policy discourses and speeches. Do you remember what year this was? That was uh, end of 2014. Mm -hmm. and I think even in China, people have been a little bit slow to understand what a big thing this is going to be. At first, even um, the Chinese media didn't really pick it up. Um, but after after a year, after 2014 and 2015, the momentum was really there. Uh, on the other hand, I could see that um, in the Western media, the, the you know articles and, and news reports that I could get uh, were mostly commentaries of people who were, who were very dismissive about it and were questioning what this Belt and Road, by then it was still called One Belt, One Road, mm, or Obor right, thing right. was 
predecessor. All about, yes. So there was a lot of skepticism, people saying, oh, it's never going to work, it's too ambitious, it's very amorphous, what is this all about exactly? Uh, how is China ever going to you know, fill the infrastructure gap in Asia? How are they going to be able to pay for all of this? They're, they have such uh, enormous um, economic difficulties themselves. So a lot of questions and not a lot of answers. Mm. And so my idea then was, wait a minute, um, what is China thinking about here? What is, what is Beijing thinking about? You know, there, there were clearly lots of efforts being done uh, to um, portray this obor uh, to the outside world as being something very special and very ambitious. Um, there was a lot of activity, diplomatic activity going on uh, from Asia, as, uh, sorry, from, from China as well. I was wondering, okay, so if, if China is doing this now, there must be a reason. Right, and why is everybody so skeptical about it? Maybe they don't understand uh, what Belt and Road is all about. So, how about I spend a little bit of time trying to understand what motivated China in launching this initiative, and trying to understand what their objectives are and why they feel like it's so important that they devote so much resources um, into it. So that was my you know, my first questions about Belt and Road. A little bit of time. Three years later, here we are with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> just just a little bit of time. Right, yes, right. a long time, yes. So then I believe that your book is primarily called from original Chinese resources, um, as well as some Western uh, media outlets. Mm -hmm. But uh, does that give you a sense at all of Chinese intentions if it was primarily discussed through Chinese discourse and not maybe there wasn't as much publications in the English language. Does that tell you anything about whether Beijing wanted to keep it subdued at, at the time? And you've sort of unleashed this uh, new understanding that Beijing hadn't anticipated? No, I think, um, I think first of all, the, uh, the, the, the lack of um, understanding at first or, or, or um, uh, understanding from the Western side is not because of the lack of understanding from the Chinese side. It's just that usually we tend to rely on Chinese sources that have been translated in our own language and it took a little time for China to translate those documents and to provide those mm -hmm. papers uh, in English for us uh, for us to, to work with. Um, what I did was to dig directly into the Chinese sources so that I could get mm -hmm. a better sense of what the discussion was all about from the beginning and met with people in China and so trying to really understand it from from the inside out and not the outside in. Mm -hmm. So part of the innovation is here is tapping into the original source before it goes through the whole cycle of translating, which they usually do for Chinese documents. but you were able to speed up the curve by getting inside more quickly. Yeah, and also I think it may be a, a sense, as, as I was doing my research, getting that sense that this is really important. They really want this to work, and they're putting a lot of effort in there, whereas most of people back then were still stuck into scratching their head and trying to understand um, what it means for us. Is this going to be doable, it's, it's, 
is this financially viable? You know, get, getting stuck in these questions, whereas I was more into how do, why do they, what did they think about it? Mm. Why? It's, it's the why question that I was more interested in rather than the so what. Mm. So then let me ask you, why? Why is China so interested in this? I think you've described this, um, the Belt and Road Initiative, as she's uh, organizing foreign policy uh, um, broad principle. plan, principle. Yeah. Um, what, what are the goals? What are they trying to achieve? Why is it important to them? So it's true that at the beginning, you know, um, people were, and still now, I think people are still focused on the infrastructure side of Belt and Road. And yes, it's one of the components of the Belt and Road. It's a infrastructure building, but there are also five elements that were there from the beginning, uh, including uh, policy cooperation, financial integration, trade, and people-to-people -people exchanges. So when you look at it, really with all those links, you can see that it's a very comprehensive initiative. Mm. It's not just about building rails and, and ports. And the objective, the official objective that was told also from the very beginning was the creation of a community of common destiny mm. around the region. Mm. So you know, think about it this way. It means that this is China's vision for a region uh, that is two-thirds of the world population and half of the global GDP uh, that will work better with China under China's helm uh, or with China at its center, where China's influence has grown. Um, so the objective is that, is asserting a bigger influence, Chinese influence over a very vast region um, and also trying to um, yeah, to, to expand this, uh, this um, political influence um, to the detriment of the United States. Why do I think uh, that Belt and Road is a key element of uh, Xi Jinping's foreign policy? Because it, it's really his, I described it before as his baby. Okay, and Belt and Road is the instrument that will allow, they believe, China to realize the China dream of the great rejuvenation of the nation. This is an objective that Xi Jinping um, set uh, for the country right after he became Secretary General of the uh, CCP back in 2012. This is the direction that we're going to take. We're going to rejuvenate the nation, which in effect means going back to her historic position mm. of the greatest power in the region, the preponderant power in the region. How are we going to achieve that? We're going to achieve that thanks to Belt and Road. Mm. We're going to develop our, um, our relationship with our neighbors, and we're going to offer them economic development as a key element of what we have to offer for the region. Mm. Mm. So then it seems like in order to create a community of common destiny, it takes two or three or how many other countries are involved to tango. Mm -hmm. So how are those states perceiving Belt and Road Initiative? 
Well, we, you would have to look at it on a case-by-case case basis. The, the original Belt and Road included 64 countries, so um, mostly across Eurasia, Central Asia, South Asia, West Asia, all the way to the Middle East, uh, some portions of Eastern Africa, uh, Southeast Asia as well. So it's a large and very diverse region. And since then, China has also included uh, the African continent as a whole, and Latin America, there's also the Arctic that now is uh, inside of Belt and Road. There's a outer space Silk Road hmm. and a digital Silk hmm. Road. So it sounds like Xi Jinping is not just the chairman of everything, he's becoming the chairman of everywhere. <laughs> so this is going to be, it, uh -huh. it shows you how ambitious this is, but it's also very flexible. You want to hmm. get in, you're welcome to get in. You want to stay out, too bad for you. You're not going to be able to ride on the fast train of the Chinese economic development. That's the official line. That's fascinating. So among the, the, the jurisdictions that the chairman hopes to have, one thing you didn't mention is the United States. Mm -hmm. So how is the United States perceiving this initiative? Uh, that's, that's a tough question. I think... Um, the, the U.S., just like, mm, I would say, most of the countries that were not on the original map, uh, took a while to try to understand and wrap their heads around what was going on, what it meant exactly. Okay, it's infrastructure, but how is this going to be done? And um, maybe our businesses can you know, uh, win something out of it and get some benefit out of it. Uh, what kind of cooperation maybe we can have with China? How can we engage maybe? So there's a lot of, you know, there's a, um, a first period of time where, all right, there's something going on here. What is it all about? So let's study a little bit more about that. Um, and then see whether it fits with our own interests. Is there something that can be done uh, together? Or is there uh, something that's problematic for us? And I think along the line, as Belt and Road projects started to emerge around, around the region, there was a, um, an impression that things are not going to be going very well in terms of transparency about how those contracts mm -hmm. are being made, about, you know, if you go back to the map, really, you can see that Belt and Road countries are mostly emerging or developing countries infrastructure projects are very expensive and China comes with mostly loans that will need to be repaid. And how is that going to have an impact on the debt burden that those countries are going to have to uh, deal with in the, in the middle and long, long run? Uh, so as we're starting to see examples emerging where Belt and Road has not really delivered very good and positive outcomes, I think the, the Western um, industrialized democracies uh, start to realize that maybe there are not so much positive things to be said about Belt and Road. At the same time, I think they're thorn uh, because they still would like to engage with China, um, maybe in the hope that they would be able to maybe shape China's vision or, or shape China's behavior and help uh, bringing China up to the standards that we abide by in terms of transparency and mm. good governance, mm. and good governance the way we understand it. Yes. Um, so um, for the U.S., going back to your initial mm. 
question. Um, I think it, it took a little while trying to f understand what this was all about and look at it from its different angles. Um, and they're still struggling with, all right, so what should we do about this mm. and, and what our response should be? And that includes uh, its partners and allies in the region as well. So it seems that there's an, a different approach um, from Western countries to perhaps uh, more of the developing nations that need um, the financial assistance more quickly. And whereas the U.S. can be a little bit aloof and examine it from far away, there are some countries that need the money now. So have you seen a difference in approach between um, those developing countries and non-developing countries? Yes, I think so, and I think also it's it goes back to the question of of standards and norms and also values that are behind Belt and Road. I think um, when you when you look at uh, at this initiative again, I think people tend to focus on the on the very physical manifestations of Belt and Road and you know the ports and the the railways and. Um, I believe that the intangible connections and connectivity that are going to grow out of Belt and Road are probably more important um, to China than the actual physical ones. Um, it's you know creating this network of countries that are more amenable to your own interests or to China's own interests and less reluctant or resistant against China's interests because of the economic leverage that China now has with these countries. I think that's more problematic. Um, so if you, if you think in terms of short-term, long-term, then short-term, you're probably right in your assessment that maybe most most of these developing countries think, okay, I need a road. This is a good thing for my country. It can, you know, facilitate trade and transportation and and flows of goods and people. This I want it now. Most of the international financing financing institutions are too slow to give me the money, and they want some conditionalities attached to it that I, as a non-democratic, maybe neo-authoritarian country uh, wouldn't like mm. to abide by. Mm. Um, and China is coming and say, we don't care about what you're doing with you know, environment standards mm. or um, local populations, um, rights. Um, you know, if you, if you want our money, if you want our workers, then we'd be happy to provide it for you. Mm. So short term, probably a win for those countries. Middle term, long term, probably not, but then it's this is maybe going to be too late. Hmm. Hmm. So it seems like China has this grand ambition. It's pulling the Belt and Road countries into its orbit. Um, but you mentioned there's a schism between ambition and then implementation. Um, so I want to drill a little bit deeper. Um, how is it? What are some of the challenges in implementation? Um, I, I think you've noticed that recently there are uh, new courts to litigate some of these commercial disputes. Can you speak to us a little bit about how it looks like on the ground? Yeah, I think that China is very uh, it's very flexible. We in the West have tried also to bring you know infrastructure development in the same countries in the same area um, after the Cold War in the 1990s. And the, the UN has worked a lot also on, and still does, um, on uh, you know, Asian um, infrastructure connectivity and development. Um, 
usually what is problematic, there's a set of, of very concrete hurdles. Like if you want to have an interconnected region um, and you go to each country, maybe each of them will have a different view of where they want their highway or their railroad to go because they want to serve their own interests first, not necessarily you know, the, the connectivity between Asia, between Asia and Europe, Absolutely. for example, right? So that's the first hurdle that you need to to look at which project is suitable for Asian connectivity. Um, and then maybe maybe you had some problems with your neighbor you know, 200 years ago and you're still resentful for it and you don't want to have that connectivity with your neighbor. I mean, there's a political element here that's obviously a potential obstacle for greater connectivity around the region as well. So. It's it's a complicated game again. How how is it going to be seamless? Um, you also have very concrete problems in terms of rail. You know the post-Soviet world doesn't have the same width for their trains as the Chinese ones. So I mean the, the, there's a set of and then the customs and then etc. So I actually don't really know how China is making this work. I haven't really looked at. You know, there. I think there's over five thousand projects that are being uh, un underway under Belt and Road. Uh, there's a lot of actors that are um, involved, Chinese ones, but also local ones and also international institutions. So it's it would require me as a just one person <laughs> working on that another decade maybe to assess each of them. So I don't know. I don't know how in concrete details this is this is working exactly. Mm. I you know I've I've stopped my study at the grand vision. Mm. Now how is this being uh, applied to concrete co uh, mm. um, concrete projects? This is this is for maybe other <laughs> you know maybe other NBR projects mm. to look at I think this would be very interesting as well then could you tell us about your plans for next steps where else are you drilling in so I I don't want to become uh, you know I don't want my name to be f eternally associated with Belt and Road so I would like to explore either right, right after she <laughs> is forever associated with Belt and Road well, yeah, probably not my personal right. ambition. So I w I'm, I'm still very interested in Chinese foreign policy in general. And obviously, it, it feels like now Belt and Road is associated with so much of what China is doing externally that it's difficult to escape the Belt and Road um, epidemic. But so I would like to explore other, other areas, but uh, related to Belt and Road, I think, uh, the, the the next one that I'm going to have with NBR is how is China going to securitize the Silk Roads? You know, China is going out. This is something very exceptional for China. It's really it's really groundbreaking. We haven't seen China doing anything like this before. So Xi Jinping is right that this for that reason it's a project of the century. This is really interesting. So how is China going to go out in so many different places, trying to um, fulfill its dream of you know, rise, thanks to Belt and Road, sending more of its citizens out, sending and having more of its assets out there in, in places that are 
unstable, you know, riddled with maybe conflict and insurgencies and terrorism. At some point, the question of the securitization of the citizens and the assets, it's going to happen. And actually, it already has. So how is the Chinese security community thinking about the challenges and the risks and how to address them. That's my that's my next um, my next next project. So as China is continuing to develop these securitization measures, folks in the West continue to watch. So what would you recommend? What should the U.S. response be? Um, and how should businesses carefully engage or not engage in the Belt and Road Initiative? Uh, that's a tough question. It's it's very difficult because. Belt and Road has morphed into something so big that it's also it's almost as if now how to address Belt and Road or how to res- respond to Belt and Road is the exact equivalent of how to address the rise of China, how to respond to the rise of China. You see, it's not it's again, it's not whether our choice is to cooperate with China on on infrastructure projects or create our own alternatives. I think the question is very, it's almost a philosophical question and an existential, existential question of um, what kind of world do we want to see? And, and if China's objective is to create this new regional order around its own interests um, linked together around, again, around China with its own set of norms that are very different from the ones that we have in the West and that we have promoted over the years. What is it exactly that we want to do? How serious are we um, to maybe defend uh, this order that we have lived uh, in for the last decades. So you see it's 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 a very profound question really. It's not when I when I think about Belt and Road for me the question is not is not about rails. It's about what kind of world order do we want do we want to see emerge? And China has this ambition to reshape or transform or change the world order so that it benefits its own interests better. It feels like uh, the one that it's been living within for for the last decades is biased and is unfair and doesn't give China much voice and it feels like it's been you know at the sidelines of, of it and has constrained its own rise. So now is the time for China, as it's grown more prosperous, more powerful, to have more say into shaping this order. So I think there's a an increasing acknowledgement that this is what China wants to do because the Chinese authorities are also more vocal in saying that as bluntly as that. Um, but then what what does that mean? Hmm. What does that mean? Could you ad- identify maybe a couple of areas where it would be preferable for the U.S. to push back and maybe some areas where it'd be in America's interest to accommodate or is that too on a case by case basis? Yeah, I think it's on a case by case. I think one country that has given a lot of thought about Belt and Road is Japan. 
and they have been very cautious about it since the beginning. They have not uh, joined the AIB. Uh, they have not endorsed it, but at the same time, uh, they have um, found uh, two ways to respond to Belt and Road. One is selectively engage and cooperate. Uh, Japan has a long history and experience in infrastructure development, and they have their own standards, and they have they, they put the emphasis on high-quality infrastructure. They have a lot of experience, and they have the same standards as the global standards. So transparent uh, environment um, protection and stuff like that. So I think they, they have started to think that maybe in some areas they can cooperate with China so that the local countries do not suffer from, from their kind of face-to-face -face interaction with China. There, there are areas where Japan refuses to go, um, like um, you know, naval um, development, port development, and maybe energy also, because these are core interests for Japan. But other areas maybe where, you know, a, a local project for um, a railway could be possible with China. And by doing this, trying to bring the Chinese actors to a level of standards that's closer to high quality infrastructure and, and good governance, basically. So that's one way of doing it. The other way is trying to provide some alternatives to Belt and Road. You know, there's... China has managed to create this sort of momentum around infrastructure. People didn't really think about it as a thing even three or four years ago. And now it's like everybody is thinking, oh, yeah, this is, this is the way to do it. And China is the leader into that. Well, we need to reclaim a little bit of that narrative because China was not there first, for one thing. And second, uh, the, the fact that Japan is trying to cooperate a little bit more with India, maybe with Australia as well, in suggesting or, or offering alternatives to the local countries, I think is a good thing. You know, the, again, going back to the map of the countries, um, I think they would, they would be happy to have you know, different offers, and then you can choose which one suits you the, the best, instead of being stuck into just one. Uh, so that's that's a way to go, and maybe the U.S. look into the the Japanese example and find ways to uh, how to make Belt and Road less harmful in terms of standards for the recipient countries, either by engaging directly on the ground, why not, or by suggesting and offering some alternatives to it. I think these are the two prongs that we could start really thinking seriously about. And it's not like we need to reinvent the wheel or create anything new. We already have international financial institutions that can work. Maybe we need to you know, reform them, them and make them work better, but we have a lot of, of instruments that we can work with already. So some entities that might enjoy the menu of options would be some businesses. Any words of wisdom to businesses who are thinking about engaging in China? You know, I think that um, the big businesses uh, who work in infrastructure uh, have uh, made up their mind a while ago and they 
know that they're probably not going to be able to have a large share of the projects. This is mostly, um, these are mostly projects that are backed by the Chinese government with Chinese subsidies for Chinese state-owned enterprises. So it's very difficult to compete, especially when you don't know what the terms are, you know, what, what the amounts, uh, what amounts we're talking about and things like that. So it's, it's complicated. Um, so I think they made uh, an acknowledgement that they're not going to be able to have the lion's share of these projects, but maybe at the margins they will. So maybe compete um, or, or participate inside of uh, Belt and Road um, uh, for services or maybe for very specific niches uh, of high-tech things that China cannot, doesn't have or doesn't offer or cannot offer yet. Um, and see here, there's also a difference of approach between between the Chinese one and the Western one. The Chinese one is state-led. It's it's very uh, it's from the top, and it's um, it's statecraft. On the other hand, the Western ones, it's private sectors mostly. So. The private sectors and the business companies in the West, and including in the U.S., have to make their own decision based on the economic efficiency and the economic return they're going to have because they have shareholders that are there too. Um, the Chinese state is a bit different, and the SOEs are different because the SOEs um, activities are in are made in order to respond to an order that comes from the central government. So they don't have any choice to go out and do whatever the central government says. So there's, there's a different approach here. And I don't think that the U.S. government um, should, I don't know, enforce anything to their businesses. It's, it's for, for them to make their own choices uh, as long as they respect, again, I think, the, the, again, the, the standard and norms uh, question is very important. And despite the challenges, many businesses do decide to go there, and they endure the challenges. Uh, so we're nearing the end of our time. A couple of rapid-fire questions to conclude okay. <coughs> require just a few words. Right. So question number one, what grade would you give President Xi Jinping so far on implementing the Belt and Road Initiative? Hmm. Well, it's difficult because it's not of him to decide about the implementation because it as you said earlier it takes two to tango right so if your partner doesn't want to dance yes. then does it mean that you're not a good dancer probably not but maybe a poor negotiator <laughs> i don't know i think i would give him an a for thinking about it okay this is this is just a such a masterful strategy it's fantastic um then implementation, I don't know, it's too early to say. Um, and it depends on what you're looking at too. If you're, if you're looking at it from a strategic perspective, I think not so bad. If you look at it from a local government perspective, uh, maybe not that good. What book on China have you recommended to others the most? I think it's China's Struggle for Mastery. Written by Aaron Friedberg. Uh, last question. <laughs> if you're to meet President Xi Jinping and he says, Mr. Alan, thank you for your interest, but why are you so interested in our Belt and Road Initiative? What would you tell him? Um, 
Because I, I, I always think it's important to understand um, the other before I can decide whether it's a good thing for me or not. I mean, um, I've been, you know, been following Chinese poli foreign policy for, my God, I don't want to say for how <laughs> long, uh, for a long time. Um, and so I'm just curious. It's just, for me, it's a constant uh, source of curiosity and knowledge and, and seeing an emerging power putting so much effort into thinking about their own role in the world it's kind of fascinating you don't you don't have m many chances in your lifetime to be able to witness that kind of effort right and how how a country or a nation thinks about its its own identity and its own role for itself in the world that's i i find this an endless source of uh, fascination would you say given as much study that you've given to Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative, have you had some kind of mind meld with him? As in, can you see the world no. through his eyes <laughs> in a way perhaps No, others? I unfortunately, no, I, w I wish I could because then I would understand maybe a little bit better um, what is all this about and why they're doing it that way. Um, you know, what's interesting is uh, in the course of the research I made, I realized that I need to um, find more time to read more about um, uh, Chinese philosophy and and you know the, the great classics because I think we need to there's a lot of historical background there and a lot of uh, almost philosoph political philosophy questions about how there's a country um, again builds this identity um, you know, in terms of strategic culture or, or historical experiences and um, political philosophy. I think there's a, there's a whole mix there that, it, again, that's that's so wide. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to finish that mm. before mm. I die. At least, right, not in one <laughs> lifetime. No. Well, thank you so much. Uh, congratulations on your fantastic uh, effort, you. endeavor. We'll look out to the for the next chapter <laughs> of your work. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Dan. Thank you very much.